Today at tea time, I discovered that uh, today is Christopher's birthday. And uh, he's hiding in the back there. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was an extraordinary synchronicity because uh, I had planned, and I will talk today about birth and death. So my first impulse was to dedicate the talk to Christopher. But then I reconsidered because I looked at my own title and it seemed that it could be a little offensive. <laughs> the title is Maculate Conception. So, Christopher, I'll leave you out from now on and happy birthday. <laughs> And in fact, who's going to take the heat of his talk is uh, a gentleman who, gentleman, I suppose, a person who died at age 55 many years ago. His name is Monsieur de la Palisse. Some of you might be familiar with him. Because for the French, Anything that is obvious, I mean, like uh, a platitude, uh, an obvious truism, an obvious truth, is called la vérité de la balise. And this comes from a popular song, which has been popular for a long time, for many centuries, which goes like this. I I'm going to take the liberty of reading it in my barely adequate French first. I love to do these things. And then I'll translate it as a sh short thing. It goes like this. Monsieur de la Palisse est mort, mort devant Pavie. Un quart d'heure avant sa mort, il était encore en vie. Here's the translation. Monsieur de la Palisse is dead, dead beside Pavia. A quarter of an hour before his death, he was still alive. <laughs> the, the, the poem was composed in 1525 by the soldiers, uh, under some of the soldiers under his, under his command, in the Battle of Pavie. He said 1525 years. A battle which was really a massacre for the French. They had amassed 30,000 troops in front of this Italian town of Pavia, and the Spanish massacred them by firepower, which was, a, in fact, one of the first big battles in which firepower was used, but only by the Spanish, the French, weren't ready for that. It was kind of a, a 16th century Hiroshima situation. It was a dreadful battle. And I, I think some of the humor in that song is a sort of a black humor of soldiers and people who couldn't face the tragedy. And, and it continues to be 
like a, a sort of a humorous cover on this business of death. On, on, on something that we don't really want to look into. So we let death fall between the cracks of language, as it were. The cracks of that, the language that's used in that song, that way. It also epitomizes how conventional truth can conceal instead of revealing. It doesn't say anything, obviously. What I like to do is to take the same um, Monsieur de la Palice, who has been used for centuries to uphold conventional truth, and turn it around. And see if by looking at Monsieur de la Palice, or a fictional Monsieur de la Palice, he'll have to be, we can reveal something that conventional truth hides. Still, this Monsieur is a bizarre choice because there's hardly anything that we know except the date of birth and death, really, and that he was an officer and apparently a brave one, although cannot really believe these things after five centuries. But very little about what happened in between or even before and after his birth and his death. I've used Monsieur de la Palice before. In fact, last month we had a retreat in Rheinberg where I lived and I, I brought him up. Interestingly enough, this retreat, also by coincidence, happened to fall on the birthday of my partner. <laughs> so there's something about this talk on birthdays. So uh, what, I, what we did in that particular retreat is I tried to reconstruct Monsieur de la Palice, just as an exercise in conceiving somebody reinvented him and there were a number of details I've made note of a few. Uh, we, we found he was short, uh, muscular, robust, had a huge nose, violent, loud laugh, loved to eat, to drink, was a philanderer, three wives in fact. No, no, no many details given whether they knew of each other. And as to his origin, the, the group frustrated me because uh, I wanted to reconstruct him uh, from a Freudian point of view, but they made him an orphan, so I couldn't uh, do much with that. <laughs> so this particular Monsieur La Palisse, whom I am going to talk uh, for the, much of uh, this talk, of course, there's no basis of fact for this way of conceiving him. But I wonder whether how Monsieur Lapalisse conceived himself. You know, if we if we are going to judge by the way we think of ourselves, say while we are sitting and we think of ourselves as this or that kind of person, and then soon enough we discover that, that this self-description doesn't fit. One cannot rely very much on self-descriptions anyway, so 
maybe maybe our description is just as good as you can get. I don't know. Let me start by trying to find out about his origin. Where does Monsieur de la Palice come from? Interestingly enough, the same word that I was just using, conceiving oneself in thought, is the same word that is used for the conception. Obviously, Monsieur de la Palice was conceived in, in his mother's womb. That is a rather arbitrary point for his origin anyway. In uh, Eastern religious traditions, of course, one would be looking at past lives. And there's a very similar way of, of considering who we are in the Western scientific tradition where heredity, heredity takes over. So if we look at the scientific point of view, we could uh, look, say, at his nose, for instance, and where did it come from? Well, it, it, it obviously has been around for a long, long time. Like all our noses have been around for a long, long time. Modified? Sure. Not exactly the same, but the but the combination of our, each one of our noses is a combination of many elements. Those elements have been around for a long, long time. So, no sense in making it the big nose of Monsieur de la Palice. It's, uh, this, uh, it's been around. <laughs> well, finally, we get to his birth, 1470. But that's really very arbitrary, because much of Monsieur de la Palice was being constructed gradually, not just from conception, but also after birth. Um, yeah, you will forgive me if I mention a few things that I've learned as a scientist, but uh, common knowledge, I'm sure, many of them. Um, a fetus doesn't have any any flora, any bugs in himself, herself, but shortly after birth, uh, just going out of the birth canal already, starts picking up the microbes that are absolutely essential for survival, that make uh, our intestinal flora. And so, that came in gradually after birth, and of course, uh, uh, with in the first years of life as well, the immune system gets first built up from the mother's milk. The early milk of a mother, called colostrum, is very, very rich in blood components, which are in fact immune elements. And then, of course, the immune system continues to develop, hopefully, throughout our lives. That's why we can survive infections. And, of course, his mind, like our minds, are constantly soaking up the world. So, it's not a once and for all Monsieur de la Palice. It's a constantly 
changing Monsieur de la Palice. And in his roles, of course. His role as an orphan, his role as a father. He had many children, I forgot to mention. And a name that goes with that in French, Papa, I suppose, whatever they call him. Role as a husband, as a lover, because he had many other affairs, Monchou, I think, whatever you want to, whatever you choose. As an officer, I don't know what the French call their officers. Here would be Sir, I suppose, right? So, this is gradual development of who he was, not all at once, not born, suddenly, picking up things from the environment constantly. And on top of all of that, it is, as I hinted before, how Monsieur Lapalisse conceived himself. In other words, how Monsieur Lapalisse created the I. For this, we can go to the Buddha, who had, it, had a lot of things figured out. I copied this from the Majjhima Nikaya as well. That's uh, one of, a collection of, of uh, suttas, of uh, scriptures. And this is what he says, what the Buddha says, about all of us, including our Messiah. Talks about conception and then goes on to say, the mother then carries the embryo in her womb for nine or ten months with much, much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then, at the end of nine or ten months, the mother gives birth with much anxiety as a heavy burden. Then, when the child is born, she nourishes it with her own blood, for the mother's breast milk is called it blood in the noble one's dis discipline. That's extraordinary definition of colostrum. When he grows up and his faculties mature, the child plays at such games as toy plows, tip cat, somersaults, toy windmills, toy measures, toy cars, and a toy boy and arrow, of course. Bow and arrow, of course. Yeah, of course it's mine. <laughs> when he grows up and his faculties mature still further, the youth enjoys himself, provided and endowed by the five chords of sensual pleasure with forms cognizable by the eye, sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. And, and then he goes on to review how each one of these uh, sense doors can lead to desire, etc. He says, on seeing a form with the eye, he lusts after it if it's pleasing. He dislikes it if it's unpleasing. He abides with mindfulness of the body unestablished. 
with a limited mind and he does not understand as it actually is the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom wherein those evil and wholesome states cease without reminder. Engage as he is in favoring and opposing is very much our Monsieur de la Palisse, engage, you know, child Monsieur de la Palisse, engage as he is in favoring and opposing whatever feeling he feels, whatever pleasant, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. As he do does, delight arises in him. Now, Delight in feelings is clinging, with his clinging as condition, being comes to be, with being as condition, birth, with birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. When the Buddha refers to birth, what does it mean? Does he mean? Acham Buddha Dasa says it states this very clear. It's an interpretation, but uh, I think it's a very faithful one. He says, birth in the teaching of dependent origination is the birth of the I concept, not a physical birth from a mother's womb. In other words, when in general, particular in this particular teaching of the chain of event called, events called dependent origination, when birth is mentioned, it's not really about rebirth, it's about the birth, the conception of I, of myself. By this sequence of events from where contact is made, say we are sitting here, we're sitting in a meditation, and we make contact with the contents of the mind, and that creates a, a feeling, or a sensation, a feeling that may be pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in between. And the next step is desire, and desire leads to grasping, and the grasping leads to the formation of I, to the fabrication of I, to the birth of I. All these facilitated by ignorance. So as I mentioned before, it's interesting that in the English language the conception of I and the conception of I as a thought and the conception of a, of a being in the womb are use this is to is the same word referring to this two things. 
I thought it'd be interesting to distinguish the two using the, a word of, uh, of religious uh, history, namely maculate and immaculate. So what I am doing is to using the word maculate for the conception in the mind when we fabricate the I out of desire, out of wish to grasp and to leave immaculate for the conception in the womb. And in that sense, I think the word immaculate applies very well to Jesus Christ. I'm certainly not a theologian, theologian, theologian. I don't want to create a new doctrine here. But simply, the word applies very well because Jesus, knowing himself as son of God, he didn't have to fabricate himself. He didn't have to conceive himself in the mind anymore. It's just conceived in his mother's womb. So much then for the immaculate birth of Monsieur de la Palisse and the maculate birth as well. The repeated maculate birth every time he thought of himself. As to his death in 1525, it seems that at that time the, the lease he had on that body suddenly expired without notice after exactly 55 years. That's the way it goes. And of course, although the lease in the body may have expired suddenly, actually the process of death, as anybody like me in this room who's aging, knows very well that it's a gradual process as well. There's incredible losses that happen and we at times deny, at times uh, I put up with. Uh, just the color of my hair. I still have all the teeth, but probably Monsieur La Palisse had lost a number before he died. Um, uh, strength, for sure, dwindles. And uh, in my case, uh, memory is a mess. And then the roles will also disappear. Many roles from our hero here, our star here, disappeared long, long before his death, like his role as an orphan, his role as a teenager. Perhaps his role as a father wasn't very effective, having to run around from one wife to another. Um, one would imagine that his role as a soldier and as an officer was uh, in place until the very end. And but clearly must have also been in place until the very end was his role 
of being alive. He's playing the role of being alive, which is also a very special role. And, and, and sometimes people who are about to die discover the wisdom to, to see that as a role as well and drop it somehow and, and get ready to die. Get ready to die. In this process of getting ready to die, there's enormous amount of anxiety act. Perhaps there's nothing that can create more anxiety than the proximity of death. When I went to India some years ago, my mother was 95. And uh, she was in great suffering from old age, mostly an old mind. She didn't have any particular illness. But she spent days screaming that she wanted to die and screaming she did not want to die. The level of anxiety was horrendous. I must say that at that time I had a, a lot of uh, sand in my eyes. I, didn't, I wasn't ready to be of help. I mostly was glad to be away. And while I was in India, she died. This whole thing came back to me in a solitary retreat I did very recently. And uh, I could finally mourn the death of my mother, could mourn the life of my mother, and could mourn and grieve the relationship we had. And when I came back from the retreat uh, just uh, last weekend, I called uh, my sister in whose home my mother died and asked her about uh, her final days because I had never asked that question. Never asked that question. I just didn't want to know. To my surprise, she said that she died peacefully. And I, I'm going to visit her next week and visit my sister next week and, 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 and try to understand that better. But it, it is possible that in the last days of my mother's life, it's possible that she finally saw, if I may use uh, Christopher's language, that the tiger had no teeth. And the tiger cannot have the teeth we imagine it to have because, think of it, if we're going to use thought for this for a moment, just, just use thought for a moment and think of it. We've been dead for eons. We've been dead for eons. And before coming up, before a number came up, as some people say. So I, I thought I'd try my hand at a little bit of poetry, 
And uh, paraphrase a song about Monsieur de la Palice. Doesn't rhyme too well, but anyway, here it goes. Monsieur de la Palice was alive, alive in his mother's womb. A quarter of an hour before conception, he was still like dead. Just as good a conventional truth as la vérité de la police. And, and the reason that many of us, certainly myself, have difficulty with this. I say this, but I still have difficulty with this. And I think that difficulty has to do with my own arrogance, with our own arrogance, that we divide the time, the time of the universe, into before me and after me. <laughs> Be me, instead of B.C. and, and A.D., A.C., whatever. <laughs> Before me and after me. A, B, B, me and A, me. So, yeah, when we do that, of course there's a difference between the eons before and the eons afterwards. But otherwise, how could there be? So all this suffering that has to do with death, all this anxiety around death, all this lack of understanding of birth, comes from grasping. Grasping of the I. Grasping of who I am. Grasping of a universe constructed around me. And this creates great suffering directly, as we all know that grasping then gets us caught up. And of course, it's grasping for the impermanent that I'm talking about. And the impermanent is impermanent, and we grasp it, and it disappoints us sooner or later. But also there is a Maybe not be that different, but anyway, there is a, an indirect a fallout from grasping, which is that grasping shuts out intimacy. We cannot live with intimacy while we are into grasping. Just try to be intimate with, in, really intimate with somebody and at the same time be jealous. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Just try to grasp those moments of bliss, joy, whatever it is in the sittings that we all have come across to, even if for an instant, or sometimes for days, Try to grasp them, they're gone. They disappear, it's just like trying to catch a soap bubble. The Buddha refers to 
such moments in his own practice. And he says, referring to to the pleasant feelings that come from the practice, he says, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. It was not for the grasping. So, how do we let go? A teacher that may be known for, to some of you, Surya Das, I heard him once say, use a, a very graphic, if blunt, image. He says, what we need to do is to develop a Teflon mind. You know, like the frying pans, yeah, coated with Teflon. Uh, I got a lot of resistance whenever I've, I've used this expression. And in fact, uh, in one of the scriptures in the Sutta Nipata, I found a uh, um, description that uh, is uh, much more poetic. It says, as a drop of water does not stick to a lotus leaf, or as a lotus flower is untainted, untainted by the water, so the sage does not cling to anything, seen, heard, or thought. So take your pick. The lotus <laughs> flower or the Teflon frying pan? <laughs> the water or the grease? But you get the point. So, whichever way, whichever way, Teflon, Lotus, we manage not to grasp. That opens the way for intimacy to reveal itself. I'm talking about intimacy with ourselves, for instance. That intimacy that we can touch and be touched by when in the sittings we find that the duality, the separation falls down, tumbles down. And and suddenly we feel connected with things. That intimacy that can emerge in relationship with others when we drop the fantasy, when we drop the expectations, when we not drop the need for the person to be this way or that way, and we are open to whatever, even open to the person leaving us. That's a big one. But it, it's a price worth paying. Intimacy with self, I said, intimacy with others, intimacy with the world. Uh, Zen master Dogen has said, to be enlightened is to be intimate with all things. I see this practice as a 
bird with two wings. Meaning that there are two aspects of the practice that are both necessary for the bird to fly. One is wisdom and the other is loving kindness, compassion, or the Brahma Vihars, whatever you call it. The love. In, in, in the full meaning of the word. When intimacy breaks out, the wisdom and the love wings can work together. They do come together and we can embrace under those conditions self, other, the world, us, our beloved. We can take ourselves as beloved. We can take the world as beloved. We can take the other as beloved. And we can take the the immensity of things as beloved as well. And and all this business of using words is a little tricky because uh, it's not a question of now having a new word to reify a new concept to add to our list or even to fall into the grammar that immediately forces us to the moment we talk about a beloved, then there's a, a lover and a loved kind of situation. Just so. And yet, to me, the word says something, opens a certain dimension. Perhaps because it hasn't been used too much. Although there's a whole tradition of that word in, in religious literature, in religious language, in Christian language, and used in the same way. This intimacy I am talking about is unconditional. It's an intimacy that does not depend on being witnessed. It's an intimacy that does not need to be validated, that does not require a witness there to say that it's there. It is an intimacy that is not conditioned even by Monsieur de la Palice, famous quarter of an hour. for a moment.
all beings see through conventional truth. May all beings let go of grasping. May all beings know unconditional intimacy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.